This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you today and a little later this hour after the news headlines at half past 12. We'll take a look at this $43 million national biosecurity initiative that's been announced at the Grains Research Updates in Perth this week. It's all about rapidly detecting and accurately diagnosing any exotic pests and plant diseases. We'll catch up with the DRDC's chair, John Woods, a little later this hour. And also, is China about to drop its large tariffs on Australian wine? Now, that is sort of some of the whispers, some of the gossip going on on the sidelines of the World Trade Organisation conference that's on in Abu Dhabi uh, this week. So we'll learn more about that later this hour. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia, streaming live on the web and on the ABC Listen app. We're going to kick off today taking a look at some seasonal conditions around the state and in one spot in particular where the owner of a Pilbara cattle station says it's been almost two years since the last decent rain and he's now investing a lot of money in boars and feeder bins to ensure his cattle are fed and watered. Michael Thompson is the owner of Mundabul and Ghana Station, 60 kilometres southwest of Port Hedland. Last year, he drilled about 12 new boars. He's also drilled a little deeper into existing boars and over the weekend purchased 100 feeder bins to add some grain into the mix as pasture supplies dwindle. Michael, how would you describe the seasonal conditions? Yeah, it's pretty grim. Basically, it's we're back to 2010 and 2016, they were the last two tough years that we had. And Even though last year was a similar year, it wasn't quite as bad because we did have strips and patches of rain which dragged most of the cattle through. But this year, well, we... We just can't afford another another bad one. No. It's a combination, Belinda, of just coming off the back of a, to- a tough year because the cattle just didn't have that. They weren't carrying the weight they would be coming out of a good year and a bad. So, of course, we start, they're starting off on a, they have been starting off on, a, on their back foot. When was the last good rain? For us, it was May of 22. We were in a spot of bother in 22 as well. And then I don't know what happened in May. The rain gods just turned it on and it started about the last week of April and then pretty much rain on and off for a month. And uh, we grew a bulk of feed and that's, everyone knows that it's, it's great to have a rain, a breaking rain, but it's always good to have consistent rain because the plants just go that little bit harder and grow a bulk of feed. So 22 was the last good year that we had and and that got us through last year, of course, because last year we'd only had we only had 54 mil um, last year. So um, around the homestead that was. So um, we we were getting by on the on the good rains of the May before. And what's what would be an average rainfall year for you? Well, the average, which is uh, for Munda, is 350. But look, if we got 250 mil every year we'd be doing somersaults 
but it doesn't work like that in the normal case. Everyone knows it's, you know, we have years of 600 mil and then we have years of 150 and it's all over the shop. I mean, it just depends on the cyclones, really. That's what gives you the, gives the average. But um, I would say uh, just relying on thunderstorms and low depressions and bits and pieces, you know, if we got a couple hundred mil, I, I, I think Munda would get by with the stocking rate that we've got, yeah. What's the groundwater situation on Munda? Terrible at the moment. We drilled about 12 holes last year. I think what your listeners need to understand that half of Port Edland's water does come out of the aquifer on Munda Station. So we've got a huge drain there. I think they pull six gigalitres, six billion litres of water comes off Munda for the town of Port Hedland to chuck on iron ore dumps, which, let's face it, they're making all the money. We are definitely not. But um, all their monitoring bores are struggling at the moment from what I, all the whispers we hear from their workers because I'm telling you all my windmills in their area are all uh, struggling. You know, we've had to re-drill or get there with sludge pumps and try and get them deeper and we're in a lot of bother and it's been a lot of expense and a lot of our time and a lot of stress on my cattle because we need to, to keep the water up to them as tough as it is as long as they get a good clean drink of water. They can walk and forage and and get by, but for the last two years now, we've been struggling for water ourselves. Yeah. So the bores you, you have on the property are dry? Well, to, to have to drill 12 holes last year shows you how. Look, our average our average um, depth on Munda was 40 feet in the old, the old scale, but since 1963, that's when they opened the bore field on Munda. Previous owners and managers have all complained about the drop you know, all the old wells don't exist anymore that were dug back in the late 1800s. They're all gone. They've had to be replaced with bores, but even now the bores are starting to dry up. The old bores that were drilled through the through the 50s, 60s and 70s, they're going dry now as well. So I just think the north generally hasn't had good rains for a long time and um, where the aquas had come to get supplied from is obviously not in the local area, it probably comes from inland as well, as well as the local area, of course, but it's been tough for a long time now and I guess it's showing signs of rack and ruin, yeah. How many head of cattle are you running on Munda at the moment? Well, I run um, 5,400 cows on Munda and um, 600 next door on a, a piece of land that I sublease off BHP, which gives me a total cow herd of 6,000, which is my legal, or Monday's legal for around 5,450, I think, cow units. And that's, it's a comfortable figure. We've got 180 water points over the 512,000 acres. I mean, I'm going to drill another five holes, but they're only getting drilled because they're, they're struggling to keep up um, water supply. And that's just, as I just explained, just through the lack of well, the aquas are dropping so low that um, we've developed every square, you know, there's a water point every four to five k's on Munda and it's it's what's keeping our cows in the game. And what's the feed situation, the grass on the ground? I mean, how are you dealing with that? Well, I can't deal with it. They've got to deal with it. But uh, I'm not dealing with it good emotionally, but um, I don't think any farmer enjoys seeing their stock suffer, so... 
not a good time for me. My wife just keeps telling me to go to sleep at 2 o'clock in the morning because I'm laying there rolling around. <laughs> but, um, look, I, um, I know that the only thing that makes the world go around in the farming industry is rain. So um, I stopped praying for rain on Saturday and I went and bought three uh, 100 bins in Gamaling on Saturday. So I'm now paying for rain. Not praying for it anymore. Yeah. So, so you've purchased over the weekend, did you say 300 feeder bins? No, nah, 100 feeder bins I bought, which will, I've allowed for 50 cows and cows and weaners per bin. So I'm going to feed 5,000 for a couple of months anyway and see see what happens. And look, if we, we've got, Monday's probably good for rain in um, March, April and May. June's probably, it does rain in June, but I would say that we've got 12 weeks of the wet season left and and then I'm going to have to put up the white flag, I guess. So you've bought this 100 feeder bins. How yeah. much is this costing you? Plus, you know, then you've got to fill them full of, of grain. Yeah, well, I can't really say what the bins cost me. A lot of money and then I'm, I sort of allowed $300,000 a month to feed them. And I've allowed that for three months. And why so, why are you doing that? Because as you said, it looks like that you know there is still a good chance of rain between sort of now and May. There's there's good opportunity there. Well, like I said, I stopped paying for it. I got to pay for it. So when you pay for rain, it always rains. So you know the old saying is you're doomed if you do, and you're doomed if you don't. To replace the genetics of any station is near on impossible, you know, and the level of breeding that we've put into Munda and to see it, you know, to have to be forced to sell it, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So I'd rather make, you know, probably put my hand in my pocket. I'm probably going to make no money this year. I've sort of resorted to the fact that it's going to be a, a survival year and damage control will be whatever the rain gods decide it will be, but if it, we're lucky enough to get rain the next 90 days, we'll, we'll turn the turn her around, we'll plug the holes and we'll refloat. but I just can't afford to take that risk, Belinda. I just couldn't go through another year like last year because we will, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have to shoot cattle. I just, that's the last resort. So this is, this is something that um, I think most of my cattle will last uh, for another three months, I believe, no problem, even though they'll be weak when we muster them. But if I feed them and help them, well, then they'll be easy to muster, so I'll get a benefit there. And and if we're lucky enough to get rain, they'll all be there to, to feel it patting on their back and their face, and that'll make me happy. What's the forecast saying? You've been looking at all the different charts, I imagine, and the, the forecasts for the next sort of week or so. What... What are the chances of rain? Well, the next week are looking good. It's going to rain somewhere, it looks like. So, um, I mean, there would have, would have been a lot of disappointed pastures after that, after last weekend, because it just hung out on the ocean, rained on the ocean, where a lot of coastal properties would have been looking at it like I was being disappointed and devastated. But this next week looks good. I'm not, you know, once again, when it's four days out, you can say it's pretty much going to happen. But when it's a week out, it chops and changes all the time. But it's looking promising, Belinda, and I hope 
that it's right because it looks like most of the state's going to get something because we all need it. I hope some of it comes your way. Thank you so much, Michael. Good on you, Belinda. Michael Thompson, he's from Munda Station in the Pilbara, which is around about 60 kilometres southwest of Port Hedland. And we'll check on that rainfall situation, what lies ahead for Western Australia and those who desperately need the rain when we cross to the Bureau of Meteorology just after half past 12 today. 17 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Global Mining Group Rio Tinto is leading the field among the mining and gas companies, paying women on average 2.3% more than men in salaries across the organisation. It is an impressive result considering the BHP Group has an 18.9% gender pay gap in favour of men, Hancock Prospecting 25%, Inpex Australia 245 and Woodside, 16% in favour of men. Richard Cohen is Rio's Port and Rail Services Director. He says despite the result, there's still a lot of work to be done at Rio, especially when you consider there's a 13.5% gap favouring men in terms of bonuses and penalties. We don't see the same percentage of women in some of our site-based roles travelling to site are taking the allowances and we still don't see women in enough of our senior leadership roles. And so you know, our attention now turns to the continuing journey to make sure that representation improves. My assumption is is that maybe there was a bit of a pay gap in previous years at Rio. How quickly has that been turned around or has it been a, a sort of longer process? Look, we've been working on that for a few years, but we've invested heavily in focus on that. And so we've been able to turn it around in, in just a few short years. It's not a not in a considerable period, but it's taken more than a year or two. Is it a point of pride for the company to sort of stand apart from other mining companies in having that sort of inverse gap where on average women are actually paid slightly more, but it is a pretty significant difference when you look at some other industries and companies? I think it's just a representation of the hard work we've been doing. We are really pleased to see that pay gap close and the progress we've made. But I would also say we're really conscious that there's a long way to go in this journey and we've still got plenty of work left to do. So we're not getting ahead of ourselves either in what's left to to achieve. It is clearly an important issue, but particularly given the focus on gender issues in the resources industry in WA in the past couple of years, clearly I think that further highlights how important it is to address. Yeah, look, I think it's it's a critical issue. You know, the, the Everyday Respect report that we issued, the Enough is Enough report issued by, by the state parliamentary inquiry, both highlighted the enormous challenges in our business and the, and the unacceptable behaviours that were happening. We know one of the important ways that you improve culture is through diversity and ensuring that our workforce represents general society. And so, It's been an absolute focus for us and it is one of the ways we will continue to improve culture in our business. Based on your conversations with colleagues and staff, in terms of that keyword diversity, what would that mean and what would that look like on the ground? Look, I I think you've got to think about both inclusion and diversity. So diversity is is the amount of representation we have in the workforce from from women and other uh, groups. What's more important to me in a lot of ways is inclusion, and that's that everyone can bring their best self to work, that they feel comfortable, that they feel safe and respected at work, 
And that's the really hard cultural work that will make this a success. Are there sort of deadlines or schedules that you're looking at or working to? I think I think we've got to think about this as a journey. What what I know as a leader is when I've got a diverse team that's inclusive, I get better results. And so not only is this the right thing to do, it's really good for business and that should be enough to motivate us. Probably a better way to ask that question is, are there quotas or quantitative numbers that you've set? Or I know you've described it as a journey. Is it more a qualitative assessment? Uh, we're, we're clear we want to improve year on year on women diversity in our workforce, but we haven't set a quota or an end target that we're aiming for. Rio Tinto's Richard Cohen speaking to Tom Robinson, 21 past 12. Sylvia Salaza is an economist at Curtin University. She says in recent years, the resources sector has worked hard to close the gender pay gap. Overall, the improvement has been significant. Some of them really fare quite well. So if you look at Tinto, they do quite well, even Fortescue or South 32. Um, I think it's worth having a context on the national, compared to the national gender pay gap, actually sits at 21.7%, which means that a lot of these uh, mining companies actually do better than we thought initially. And that's because they have taken seriously the gender equity in their businesses. We know that the mining sector, for instance, they have an issue with the composition of their workforce, mostly because it's very male dominated and there is very little women's and the women that are there not normally do it to the top. So what you want for that gender pay gap to decline is that you want more women in the mining sector and you want that more women in that top jobs that are the ones that are creating a lot of the gender pay gap in that industry. On that issue of diversity and, and getting more women on places like mine sites and in leadership roles, I think something that often comes up in these discussions is quotas, which can spark a bit of debate about their validity and their usefulness. Uh, what's your view on that? Are quotas a useful tool that some of these companies have used or, or could look at? Putting in place quotas is always quite, it's always a controversial issue, let's say. But research has shown that it works to some extent. What you want is that you want that those ones that are being overlooked get there, you know, uh, into those placements. I think that it's a valid option. Is that what the company wants to put in place? In the mining sector, so we know that women only make up 19% of the workforce. So a little share of women in the workforce also means that there are less and less that get to the top, right? So you definitely want to incentivize more women getting into this sector. That can only be done breaking down some of the gender stereotypes that you have, either at the entry level, so getting start in the mining sector to start with, but also things that is not allowing women to move upwards in that higher paid positions. Curtin University economist Dr Sylvia Salaza speaking to Tom Robinson. 24 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And the difference between what men and women are paid in Australia's agricultural sector was also raised at a panel discussion at the GRDC's Grains Research Updates in Perth yesterday. The ABC's Kate Forrester was there. Kate, what were the key points raised by the panel yesterday? 
Hi, Belle. Well, firstly, it's really nice to be in the studio with you in person. Um, as you said, the last two days, Andrew Chowding and I were at the GRDC, uh, the Grain Growers Update, um, two days of that. And yesterday morning, Andrew and I both attended the breakfast where they held a panel discussion. And it was really relevant, actually, to the news that was brought out yesterday morning about the gender pay gap. So the theme of the discussion was no one does it alone. And basically, what the panel spoke about was diversity and inclusion in the grain industry and what that looks like. And as I said, I I just thought the timing of the panel was so relevant to that news yesterday. And three out of the four panel members were female and had really interesting insights into their own personal experience, I guess, within the industry. Well, let's take a look at the panel. Who was on it? And what were they able to reveal about the efforts to try and close that gender pay gap and be more inclusive? Yeah, yeah. So as I said, there was three out of four females. So we had Sharon Parker, the director of the center, the director from the Center for Transformati- Transformative Design. I'll get it out. <laughs> Heather Brayford, the director general of Deeper. Ben McNamara, who was the CEO of the CBH Group, and Dr. Larissa Cato from AGIC, and it was hosted by Courtney Draper, also from AGIC. Um, some of the points, I guess, that really stood out to me and resonated was Heather Brayford, who, uh, as I said, was the DPIRD Director General. She's actually the first woman to lead DPIRD, and she talked about back in 2017 when that was first formed. She was the only – there was only one female in the team, and now fast forward, there's now five out of seven are women. Um, I guess as well Sharon Parker made some interesting points. She said that – you know, yes, we're talking about female representation, but she also touched on mature age in agriculture and what that might look like, how they can represent them better. Um, one other thing she brought out that I definitely can see how that's happening in the real world right now is the glass ceiling versus the glass cliff and how women are being elevated to positions of power when maybe some of the, these big companies are in strife. And uh, I think... I mean, obviously not going to name names of companies, but I think it's pretty obvious we can see where that's happening. Um, so, yeah, as I said, some really interesting points to come out of a panel discussion over breakfast. And so what are the next steps for the agricultural sector in terms of closing the gap and seeing more diversity mm. in these sort of workplaces? So Ben McNamara from CBH, he was obviously there to represent them and he he touched on how he can see that the demographics within CBH are changing. They uh, had a 24% employment rate of females three years ago and he said fast forward now they have about a 29%. Um, obviously he said yes we still have work to do in this space and looking at those figures alone you can see that but uh, you know I, I think questions asked by audience members as well held those panel members accountable. Uh, one of them were uh, was Trevor Whittington from WA Farmers. And he got up and said, you know, I've just done some really quick calculations here just based on this audience in the breakfast today. 60% are female, 40% are male. We're having these discussions about how can we get females more represented within the workplace. But what about those you know, those other areas like disability and um, diversity in agriculture, where are those conversations there happening and going forward, how do we represent that more? And I guess all 
panel members agree that that was really important. Um, but a, a really good point I thought that Trevor raised because I looked around as well and thought, hey, that's actually a really good point. Yeah, and it was a point that was raised just a moment ago with Rio too, looking at that diversity and inclusivity was mm. another point. So that's obviously a theme among those sort of businesses at the moment. Now, as you mentioned, Kate, you and Andrew have spent the last two days at the GRDC Grain Research Updates here in Perth at the Convention Centre. What really jumped out at you for this yeah. year? Yeah, well, it was a massive two days. I think I kind of went in, you know, I, I obviously knew where I was going, but I probably didn't really understand just the sheer scale of the research update. And there were so many different areas that were there from, you know, the grain industry. And then there was people from regenerative agriculture. And they, it was just such an array of people. Um, Andrew and I both spoke to lots of grain growers from all over the state, all over Australia, all over the world, actually. Um, and I think yesterday afternoon at 5pm, when everything was wrapping up, I spoke to this grower from um, Mullawa in the Wheat Belt. And he just tied it all so nicely in for me. Like I've heard, I'd heard from these experts and all this amazing data and scientific research. And then it was this grower from Mullawa that basically just said one word to sum up agriculture right now is change and how can we adapt? Because it's pretty obvious, he said, agriculture is changing. And, you know, from some of the conversations we've heard the last two days about how AI is now being incorporated into ag, it's 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 all about change and we need to be able to keep up with that. And I thought for, and not to, you know, throw him under the bus, but for a middle-aged man on a farm who is adapting to this change, who knows where where we're going to be in another 10 years if we're willing to change. And we're going to hear all these stories rolling out shortly on the Rural Reports and also here on the country. Yes, tune in to the Great Southern Southwest Rural Report or any other rural reports. There'll be lots of great information. Look forward to it. Thank you, Kate. The ABC's Kate Forrester, who attended this week's GRDC Grains Research Updates in Perth. It is 29 to 1, and Jonathan Hopper is just making his way into the studio just made it over from the newsroom and he's got the headlines for you. Good afternoon, Belinda. Former Deputy Liberal Leader Steve Thomas claims he was punished for telling the truth about having contact with a disgraced former Premier. Mr Thomas, Thomas stood down from his senior party roles yesterday after it was revealed he had several interactions with Brian Burke over the past six months. A 45-year-old Midwest man accused of shooting a 40-year-old man in the arm has been refused bail. The Geraldton Magistrates Court heard a Carl Ian Jones had a verbal argument with a long-term acquaintance outside his Eniaba home before firing a gun at a man. Police say the victim suffered significant injuries to his lower arm, wrist and other parts of his body and was flown to Perth for treatment. And Western Force Captain Jeremy Williams will make his return to Super Rugby after suffering concussion when the Force played the Rebels in Melbourne on Friday. Williams missed the season-opening loss to the Hurricanes after suffering the injury in a practice match. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you so much for the update, Jonathan. Appreciate that. 28 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Still to come, just before the news, at one off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market. And also just taking a look at the World Trade Organisation conference, which is underway this week. And there's a lot of talk about the prospect of China preparing to drop those huge tariffs on Australian wine next month. 
So we'll look into that a little more detail. And also, uh, Kate Forrester was just talking about the GRDC Grains Research updates on in Perth this week. And some of the other big news coming out of that is this $43 million national biosecurity initiative. And we'll just take a look because that, I mean, it's big money, isn't it? But it does involve uh, four, uh, five state departmental organisations all involved in that and contributing money to this project, including WA's DPIRD. The chair of the GRDC, John Woods, along shortly. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Luke Huntington with you today. Now, Luke, there are a lot of primary producers, station owners really looking for some rain and there is a prospect of some of it a little later this week. So... Uh, what have you got for us? Let's start in northern and eastern parts. What's the story this afternoon into the weekend and the new week? Yeah, afternoon, Belinda. So, yeah, the uh, looks like most of the rain um, associated with showers and thunderstorms today will be over the northern and eastern Kimberley. So, in the last 24 hours, uh, that's where the sort of the heaviest falls were, about um, sort of 50 to 70 millimetres. Um, and as I said, continuing uh, today. But we also have some um, showers and thunderstorms forecast throughout most parts of the Pilbara and the interior region. But in those uh, areas, you wouldn't uh, receive too much rainfall with thunderstorms. It's a little bit drier through that area. Um, as we head into tomorrow, again, the focus of the heavier falls up north will be uh, the Kimberley area. So there could be some possible heavy falls with thunderstorms. But but we also have uh, showers and thunderstorms forecast over most parts of the Pilbara, the interior, and also I'm um, extending down into the goldfield right down to eastern parts. Um, sorry, western parts of the Eucla. So, um, but uh, it looks like uh, the rainfall in that area, sort of through the Pilbara interior and the goldfields into the western Eucla, um, is going to be sort of little to no rainfall. So again, all the heavier stuff um, confined to the Kimberley. Um, as we get to Friday, uh, we do see the thunderstorm activity pick up a little bit uh, through the goldfields and the western Eucla. So there could be a little bit of more rainfall associated with storms. So maybe up to around 5 to 15 millimetres in that area. Um, but most of the activity will still be confined to the Kimberley area, maybe getting down into the interior region. We also have thunderstorms forecast for the, uh, the northeast Gascoyne and the eastern Pilbara. But in that area, again, little to no rainfall um, in that area with storms. Um, on Saturday, it's a similar situation, really. Um, we do see um, quite a widespread area of showers and thunderstorms over the Kimberley interior and the eastern Pilbara, but this time there's a little bit more moisture present. So I'd say those areas would be getting a little bit more rainfall, um, especially through the Pilbara and interior and even through the um, inland Gascoigne, we could be looking at some rainfall uh, with storms. And then getting on to the last day, Sunday, um, again, quite high moisture levels coming in from the north. So the Kimberley, the Pilbara interior into the inland Gascoigne, um, very similar to Saturday, you could be getting widespread thunderstorms with uh, a bit of rainfall around. All right, let's move into the Southwest Land Division. What can you say? Yeah, it's going to be fairly quiet over the next couple of days, especially today. Um, we don't have any precipitation forecast over the Southwest Land Division. Um, it's all due to a high pressure system to the south and a trough developing off the west coast. But as we head into tomorrow, um, we may see some thunderstorms forming um, over the very far eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division. So in the vicinity of sort of the Esperance area, um, they're sort of, sort of going to be mid-level storms. So um, they, we could see something fire off, fire off in the morning period and continue into the afternoon. Those storms, probably not having too much rainfall associated with them, maybe zero to five millimetres um, if you do get under 
under, under a storm tomorrow. Um, and then Friday, uh, those mid-level storms probably continue during the morning period over that Esperance area and then contract eastwards by the afternoon. Um, on Saturday, we do see um, some thunderstorms creeping back to most parts of the southwest land division. So back to the central west, right throughout the Wheat Belt, Great Southern area, down into the southeast coastal region, including Esperance once again. Um, it's a bit it's a bit isolated and patchy on Saturday, so it could form anywhere in that area. Um, again, not too much rainfall associated with the storms, but very isolated areas could get up to around sort of that 10 to 15 millimetres. But in terms of the forecast uh, for Sunday, it's looking, uh, yeah, Sunday's looking the day where we could get widespread showers and thunderstorms. Um, there is quite a significant upper-level system combining with a surface trough, so um, we could see sort of those showers and thunderstorms start off from the early morning and continuing right throughout the day. So that would be um, throughout the whole southwest land division. Um, but in terms of rainfall, um, there, is, there is potential of getting heavy falls uh, with those storms. So um, the forecast that goes out this afternoon through the, through the Wheat Belt Great Southern area, you'll probably be looking at sort of falls up to around 20 to 30 millimetres at the moment with isolated falls to 50. Um, but obviously with, with thunderstorms, they're a bit hit and miss. So um, it just depends on where those storms do form. But there is a potential of uh, severe thunderstorms on Sunday producing quite a bit of rain. So um, that's something to watch out for. And any warnings today? Uh, the warnings, we just have the normal coastal wind warnings, heatwave warning, and we do have a flood warning for the Sturt Creek District in the Kimberley. Thank you so much, Luke. Appreciate that. 22 to 1. Checking the rainfall figures now. The last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, checking 5 mils and over and starting in northern and eastern forecast districts. In the Kimberley, Diggers Rest, 11. Emma Gorge, 16. Gib River, 12. Columbaroo, 11. Kununurra Aero, 12. Kununurra Checkpoint, 73. Nicholson, 5. Troughton Island, 8. Truscott, 6. And Warman, 44. In the Pilbara, Kulawanya, 15. Mubblebar, 10. Telfer Aero, 21. And then in the southwest land division, not much to report. In the southwest, Pemberton had three over two days. And then a few drops in the southern coastal region, Albany, 1. Denbarker five over two days, King River one and Tamar two. And that's it. It is 21 to one. Well, farmers in Victoria's West are bracing for the worst as multiple fires burn in what authorities have warned could be the worst day of bushfire weather in recent years. Today has been declared a day of total fire ban across six Victorian districts and emergency services have called on residents around Beaufort to leave the region. Tom Dreyfe farms in the region east of the fires and he's been busy ploughing paddocks, preparing to move sheep to safer pastures. Well, we're under fairly heavy smoky at the minute. Uh, we're a long way from the fire front itself. Like it'll be at least 10 k's from our place here at Brewster to the nearest uh, large, larger fire, I suppose, from the last week. Yeah, it's pretty hard to say what's happening. The, the smoke's got us sort of blanketed out to the to the level where we sort of can't really tell what's happening around us at the minute. And what are you uh, doing to prepare for? The next couple of days, we know that there's some pretty fire-friendly conditions, for lack of a better term. So what are you doing to prepare your farms? Well, at the minute, we've got a lot of sheep on this Brewster block. We're planning on we're planning on paddocks at the minute and, and going to put all the sheep on ploughed paddocks, which uh, 
it's nice to have had a bit of time up our sleeve to to get prepared on that uh, on that front. I suppose it means that hopefully all the livestock should be safe. And how and, many sheep do you think you're going to need to move? Oh, uh, there's about eight thousand on this block. They're not our sheep; they're actually adjustment sheep from further afield. But they've been here for the last month, and uh, and we've got to try and make sure we get them through the next week. I suppose. So how are you feeling at the moment, Tom? I know that you've gone through some pretty horrific fire seasons in the past. Yeah, look, I'd say it's going to be Russian roulette, really. We don't know what will unfold or where it will unfold. Like, yeah, we, we, we're sort of trying to get prepared as best we can, knowing that uh, if it gets away, it's going to be hard to handle. But um, on the other hand, yeah, we may, we may get off unscathed if we're lucky too. It's quite dry around the Ballarat region at the moment. So talk us through what happened last time there was a large fire in your area. Yeah, well, last time the Mount Bolton fire, and it wasn't large compared with this one. It was probably relatively small compared with this one. But it was able to spot 10Ks out off the, the main fire front. Ran really hard and fast. It was really hard. Sort of didn't matter how many, how many tankers you might have had in a paddock. It was getting past us regardless. This fire is yeah, going to be far more difficult than that, I would imagine. Uh, even last Thursday, we were on our way to this block with a with a private fire truck of our own, and we actually there was a lot of spot fires, um, sort of between our farm and and Beaufort, I guess, um, or around the Beaufort area, and we diverted off to them rather than coming to our place. But after we'd sort of finished doing what we were doing there and came down here, my kids were actually down here at the Brewster farm, but um, there was lumps of bark as long as your arm and 10 mil thick that had landed here that had been burnt. It's pretty pretty unbelievable to see what's drifted in the air. Um, so it's not hard to see that the spot fires uh, are going to travel uh, large distances. If it happens again, I'd say spotting out to 10 or 20 k's wouldn't be out of the question at all. Hopefully everyone gets off unscathed. But yeah, you'd say if we have a lucky date, we'll be all good. Yeah, if we have a rough day. It'll be different, I suppose. Oh, wishing them all the very best in Victoria. Tom Dryfee farms east of Beaufort in Victoria, where authorities are currently fighting multiple serious fires in catastrophic weather conditions. He was speaking to Jane McNaughton. 17 to 1, and just before 1, heading to Catanning for the results of the sheep market. And 10,500 sheep and lambs yarded for sale today. A little bit up on last week's numbers. Tracy Kilner will go through those details. First, though, the Grains Research and Development Corporation has announced a $43 million national biosecurity initiative at this week's Grains Research Updates in Perth. The six-year initiative is a co-investment with five state government departments, including WA's DPIRD. It's going to use state-of-the-art technology and processes to improve Australia's ability to rapidly detect and accurately diagnose exotic pests and plant diseases, allowing identification to happen near the paddock rather than in centralised laboratories. GRDC Chair John Woods says it's a significant investment which should produce significant benefits. To invest this type of money right across Australia, to put in $42 million, 50% of which is uh, GRDC, and the other 50% substantively the states that are uh, operating with uh, regards to the grains industry. So you've got the West... South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland are all contributing to this initiative and this biosecurity uplift. And what it really means is 
we're ensuring that the grains industry is well prepared for exotic pests and diseases and ensuring that we're well armed. So we're really doing a boost to diagnostics and surveillance is the key to this initiative. So the main priority here will be about improving the detection, getting on to those pests and diseases more quickly? Absolutely. And in doing so, part of this uplift is actually people, technicians and technology. So we're actually employing 20 new staff, technicians. In fact, they're actually being employed as we speak. It's taken us just over two years to negotiate and develop up this initiative with the state agencies and those 20 specialist technicians on biosecurity are coming online as we speak. So a lot of those people will be charged with the responsibility of ensuring that we've got the diagnostics capacity and also the surveillance as close to farm between our farms and the port zones to ensure that if there's an incursion of an exotic pest or disease, we can catch it as early as possible, get the diagnostic done so we know exactly what it is and then have the protocols to deal with it whether it's an eradication or a management response, we need to make sure we've got the protocols to deal with that. Because is that one of the areas where there is a bit of a delay and, and opportunity for these pests and diseases to, to jump? Is is that delay in getting that diagnostic done you know, a bit further afield from in the field itself? Yeah, and obviously we, wouldn't, uh, we would not invest unless we saw a gap. And given that the grain industry is now the largest industry in Australia in agriculture, we need to be well prepared. And to your point, You're absolutely right. We have 54 identified high-priority exotic pests and diseases that are regarded as very high risk to the grains industry if they were to get here. We currently only have around 10% of those have very clear diagnostics protocols and response protocols against those. So we need to do that and do that quick smart. So those diagnostic protocols essentially is uh, we've diag- well, a, a process of diagnosing a particular disease or, or pest and then having a plan of how to actually deal with it. So there are pests and diseases that are, as you say, high risk where that, where that doesn't yet exist? Yes, that's exactly right. And look, we know from very conservative figures that just the most basic incursion into the Australian grains industry, it would cost circa... $100 million as an impact in that industry very early in the phase that it might come into Australia. So that means preparedness is key, not only to stop it, but also minimise the cost of the industry. We don't want things coming into Australia and becoming endemic. And sadly, in recent times, in the last few years, we've discovered fall armyworm, particularly in the north of Australia, but it's now coming down the east coast and as, as far down as the Liverpool Plains. And that's the best that we should have avoided having coming into Australia and it took too long to actually make a decision about whether we could eradicate that or have a crack at eradicating it. As you say, all the states, or you've got a number of states who have come on board for this uh, project. Your specialists, will they be based around the country? Yes, they'll be spread uh, pretty much evenly around the country. As I say, all those state governments uh, are investing with us. And I think part of the strength of this investment is that it's been a very collaborative investment when we developed it up, we consulted with the states, we identified the pinch points and where the gaps were, particularly bespoke to grains. And to invest against this with $42 million over six years with them to build capacity, we also know as a grain industry that we're effectively doing an uplift for the plant industries when it comes to biosecurity around Australia. But look, we're mature enough to know that what is good for us may be good for others. And we're very happy to support that investment right across the areas that we are largely farming and we are 
all going to be beneficiaries as a planned industries to have this uplift. And to think that it's on a six-year horizon gives us time to build and preserve that capacity. We need to make sure we've got the people and the technology deployed on an ongoing basis. GRDC Chair John Woods with Selena Green, 12 to 1. Well, overseas now to Abu Dhabi, where some very interesting trade talks are going on at the World Trade Organisation Conference. There's the official talks and then there's the sideline talks going on between Australian government ministers and their Chinese counterparts. And from what we hear is China could be about to drop its large tariffs on Australian wine next month. Parliament House reporter Kath Sullivan has been looking at the very real impacts the years of trade limbo have had on individual businesses. And she spoke to Warwick Long about what she's heard. Absolutely. There are a lot of producers, there are fishers, there are meat processors and there are wine grape growers in particular who are still really hurting from this trade war, um, which started out before or as the COVID pandemic was really spreading. You might think back to uh, 2020, and it was a number of Australian abattoirs um, in Queensland and New South Wales that were the first to be suspended from exporting to China. At the time, it was over um, labelling complaints. These abattoirs, they represented something like a third of a trade considered to be worth $3.5 billion. And despite some abattoirs getting back into China uh, last year, these big, heavy-hitting ones are still locked out. And they were really the first cab off the rank um, in this trade war that that really spread from a lot of um, diplomatic tensions that didn't necessarily have to do with with primary production. What's the government been saying? Because it it was big on trying to change the relationship but yeah it's been saying that for a long time and not every every tariff is gone as we've just been speaking about with wine yeah that's right and um it's not the same government either you'll have to recall that we've had a change um in canberra and the government has been working to um restore relations with china not just the trading relationship but the diplomatic one as well and when it comes to trade we have seen exports that were locked out of china um since 2020 including barley coal timber um i mentioned a few meatworks including a couple of lamb producers lamb exporters from victoria have been able to get back into china but this conversation is a long way from over um still got tariffs supplying to Australian wine, red wine, into China, a trade that was worth $1.2 billion uh, before these tariffs were applied. I think last year Australia sold something like $10 million worth of wine into China. So there's a big uh, difference there. Um, And you've also got the lobster fishes. That's a trade worth $700 million before quarantine concerns were raised by the Chinese government um, again in 2020 and we haven't seen any rock lobster go into that marketplace since. So uh, you might say that things are headed in the right direction. We know before Anthony Albanese went to China last year, um, I think it was November time, the Australian Trade um, Minister and Foreign Minister announced that China had agreed to review these tariffs applied to wine. that review was always expected to run until the end of March, which is fast upon us, um, with the Australian government maintaining that if the tariffs aren't removed, it will resume its complaint with the World Trade Organisation, which I guess is a bit like the independent umpire. 
So in terms of the, the impacts then and the fallout from this trade mm. war, even if tariffs are returned, we just heard Paul DeRego saying it'll be years before growers start to, yeah. to feel prices go up as they try and clear a backlog of red wine in particular. Um, has the trade relationship and the market of the pro- this produce being produced in uh, Australia, has this been changed forever? Well, I think you could certainly suggest that was, um, you know, if you talk to wine grape growers, particularly those growing grapes to go into the bulk wine market, they're really hurting at the moment. We've heard about producers receiving the equivalent of 1970s prices. Um, One wine grape grower I met in the South Australian Riverland last year told me um, before China's tariffs, they might receive something like $650 a ton for Cab Sav or Shiraz grapes, that's more likely to be $120 per ton this year. That's, that's talk about a cost of living crisis. How do you pay your irrigation bills, your supermarket bills, your electricity bills? How do you keep your vines alive when the prices are going backwards? And while there's a lot of optimism and hope from the government and the industry that China will remove these tariffs, There's so much wine in the world at the moment. There's an absolute glut, even those who have replaced Australia in the highly valuable Chinese marketplace and not getting the returns that Australia saw. The economy there is slowing and there's just going to be such a backlog that it's going to take a long time. And then you've also got the issue of developing trust with customers. You know, for so long, Australia realised it was putting, um, I guess, a lot of its eggs in the China basket, you might say, and that's because it was getting such high returns. But there's plenty of people that have been caught out by this trade war, um, including those in the barley, timber and coal sectors. And it'll be interesting to see whether they want to go down the path or whether they're uh, perhaps more willing to diversify for a lower value return. Cass Sullivan is the ABC's National Rural Reporter. Six minutes to one. Well, across Australia, wild-caught seafood industries are facing new regulations and changes in an effort to best manage our oceans. Here in WA, controversial marine parks and catch limits have been introduced, while over in Queensland, fishers are seeing practices like the use of gill nets phased out. So what does all this mean for the future of Australian seafood? Alastair Dick manages a prawn farm in North Queensland owned by Sea Farms. That's the parent company of Project Sea Dragon, which has plans to develop a $2 billion prawn farm north of Kununurra on Lejeune Station. Alastair Dick sees the restrictions to wild-caught seafood as an opportunity for aquaculture. We use our branding very heavily and a lot of people uh, may not know that they're buying farm prawns but what we've seen in blind trials that more people will get it wrong than right so obviously the quality is equivalent if everything starts off as good quality and those prawns are handled really well seafood as most of your listeners will understand is very much about freshness and so there's some real key indicators whether you're buying wild or farmed about how to choose a really good prawn Um, if they're fresh the antenna should be long, the eyes should be shiny, the shell should be shiny, they shouldn't be broken. And they're indicators of quality prawns, whether they're farmed or wild. And so that's what consumers should be focusing on, is really understanding what those quality attributes are so that they can make informed decisions themselves, whether whether they are farmed or wild. But we know our products stack up really, really well because uh, we've got a very good brand recognition 
So I think over time, is that message is getting through. I may receive a potentially biased answer to this question, but in your opinion, is there a taste difference? Uh, no, I, I love wild prawns and I love uh, uh, farm prawns as well. I think they're, they're both fantastic products. Um, yeah, look, I, I think in, ma- in many ways they're, they're very very equal, of course. The, is- the issue is that uh, farming is, is, is probably long-term a more sustainable practice and we're seeing lots of pressure come down on fisheries management and whatever. Uh, fisheries in Australia are coming under a lot of pressure. Um, we're seeing it in the media all the time now, the recent mackerel closures, the finfish closures, other finfish closures and whatever. So there's more pressure coming down on that. I think recently some net closures for barramundi that you'd be aware of. And I guess um, that does create opportunities for farmers over time. But there's obviously an agenda that the state governments are running. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think their, their agenda is, you know, I feel that they're uh, in some ways more comfortable with, with farming overall. But I guess that's a... That's a uh, question for the Minister for Fisheries as well. Alistair Dick, he's a business and operation manager at Sea Farms Queensland, Cardwell-based prawn farm. And it, when it comes to Sea Farms business in Western Australia, the company says it plans to appeal the federal court's judgment that was handed down last week, deeming its project Sea Dragon insolvent. Two minutes to one to the markets. 10,547 sheep and lambs were yarded for sale at Catanning today. That is up 3,842 on last week's numbers. Tracy Kilner, the offering was dominated by mutton. Was there much interest? Demand for the ewe mutton eased with numbers, seeing heavyweights remain mainly firm, while the medium and lightweights eased at least $5 across the board. Numerous pens failed to secure a bid or sold as low as 50 cents a head. Lambs trended down as well with less competition, while the live export pushed suitable weathers to $50 and rams to $49 a head. Lightweight lambs under 16 kilos carcass weight sold from $1 to $55. Weights under 18 kilos carcass weight made from $50 to $75. Trade weights returned $84 to $111 and heavy weights sold to $113 a head. The heavyweight weather hoggets gained with live export local and interstate processes bidding, seeing weather sell to $50 while the ewes sold to $35 a head. Light plain hoggets made from $2 to $23, quality dependent. Store ewes sold from $0.50 cents to $15, medium weights sold to $30 with a fleece and the heavyweight ewes over 30 kilos carcass weight returned $25 to $40 a head. Heavyweight weathers sold to live export from $30 to $50. Mature rams gained, making from $1 to $35 to processors and from $25 to $49 to live export. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you so much for that. Tomorrow we are off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market. I think it's just the one-day sale tomorrow. Uh, great to talk to you today. Remember, if you miss something, you can always listen back on the ABC Listen app. You can listen back to about a week's worth of Country Hours or go to the Country Hour WA webpage and listen back anytime you like via the web. Good to talk to you on the ABC. Time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.